So, Jay, I found the email. It was from December 2nd, 2000. Okay. Uh, from you to me and to Justin. Um, starts with uh, very little capitalization here. It opens with, got bit by a dog this morning, confirming <laughs> that I should have stayed in Dharamsala instead of returning to, quote, the rest of India. My backpack was <laughs> off in seconds and suddenly transformed into a deadly canine-killing weapon, but the mud backed off. It didn't feel too bad, but when I checked the back of my pants, there was a rip and what looked like bloodstains. On closer examination, after dumping a gallon of that methanol spirit stuff on it, I realized this didn't break at all, and the stains were on the outside of my pants and from an external source. Most importantly, not me. So... I'm back in Delhi. Anyhow, sorry I missed you guys. I checked my email probably just before you sent yours, because this was a thing that happened back then. Uh, yeah. And then figured you were already on your way out and having spent a lot of time emailing people in the days before, imposed an internet ban until I left Dharamsala. And, and then, and then you, you go to the next paragraph, my ear. Yes. <laughs> the lower lobe is just peachy and has been for some time. For future reference, it's a good place to pierce. <laughs> as far as the upper ear, I don't think a single 12 hours period went by where I didn't somehow snag it or yank it in some excruciatingly painful manner. So the fact that it still hurt a bit didn't bother me much. I started getting worried a bit in Dharamsala and even had a dream where my upper ear turned black and dead. But after that, I went four or five days without a hitch. Uh, I'm feeling better about the whole thing. Uh, but yesterday, I got my head shaved again, and the barber whacked, wiggled, and jiggled it constantly. <laughs> Still, it's not that bad as long as I don't directly move the ring around. <laughs> um, okay, so one, I apologize for laughing at my own email, but... <laughs> But the other thing is, I sound like I'm in an abusive relationship. Oh, it's not so bad. You know, right. I only got, I, I made it 12 hours without any pain. Oh, no, this yeah. is better. <laughs> <laughs> but wow, the mindset we had of, oh, no, this is good. This is normal. Oh, um, yeah. uh, well, th thank you for sharing that. Uh, as I've mentioned to you guys, uh, my excite.com email address is long since, actually, technically it still exists, but uh, I, I kind of stopped using it at one point years ago. And then if you got, went six months without logging in, they just wiped it. So yeah. I don't have, apart from the mass emails I sent that I, you know, I'm collecting and reading for this, I don't have other communications. Um, so I do appreciate that because... <laughs> Did you miss that? Did you think it would ever come back? Well, here it is, just for you. <clears throat> Welcome back to all of you great members of the J-Luck Club, presented as always by Honey Roasted T-Shirts. Check out HoneyRoastedT-Shirts.com for the latest episodes, show notes, pictures, and extras. If you don't want all the extras, and prefer a more minimalist approach, you can also stop by the JLuckClubPodcast.com and get straight to it. Better yet, subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and just wake up to find new episodes as they are released. 
Once again, before we get started, I'd like to thank all of you, great members of the JLEC Club. If you are uncertain about your membership status, then be uncertain no more. You are most definitely a member in great standing, and I thank you for your continued support. I also thank those of you who are just joining us on this journey. This is episode 9. Wow, I've done this nine times. Nine times. And if you haven't listened to the first eight, I encourage you to do so. But you are welcome to dive in right here as we pick up my journey of 20 years ago. In our last episode, I caught you up on my two-week volunteer project, where I was put to work doing hard labor, which entertained the locals with my heavy panting and large quantities of sweat. But I found comfort and inspiration in numerous platefuls of dal bot, the classic Nepali dish of rice and lentils. When we last left off, I had departed the village, heading for Pokhara, with a plan to tackle a trek through the Annapurna circuit, because who wouldn't want to spend three weeks hiking? Just every day, on your feet, walking for three weeks. Anyway, a lot happened in the following weeks, and I now present you Letters from Nepal. November 1st, 2000. 2. Pushkar Camel Fair Committee. Dear Sirs, it is with heavy heart and deep regrets that I must inform you I will be unable to attend this year's Camel Festival in Pushkar, India. Time constraints and other factors have resulted in this unfortunate situation. When I began my broad-stroke planning of this journey, I had originally intended to put most of my emphasis on India after spending a couple weeks in Nepal. As it stands now, I am nearing the end of my second month here, and not a bit of this time has been ill-spent, though admittedly some of this time has been spent ill. After my two weeks of volunteering, I spent three weeks trekking around the Annapurna mountain range, followed by a three-day whitewater rafting trip. In my remaining time, I still have much to explore in the Kathmandu Valley, and I should also hope to visit the birthplace of Buddha on my way out. Deciding to give this beautiful country the time it deserves has made for an overall experience that is not only unforgettable, but also true to the spirit and purpose of my travels. As they say, you get out what you put in, though what came out in my frequent and urgent trips to the toilet looked nothing like what I put in. I've not given up on your country entirely, though my subcontinent budget of time and money has definitely favored Nepal. To tell the truth, at times I've been so overwhelmed by the possibilities of things I want to see and do, I've nearly canceled the whole thing entirely in order to save India for a future trip. I would fall asleep convinced India would have to wait, and then wake up the next morning determined to go at all costs. Unfortunately, my funds have been depleted considerably, and this fact would invariably result in my decision to finish out my visa here, then head back to Southeast Asia. But when I heard word of your magnificent festival, drawing over 200,000 traders and 50,000 camels each year, I was sold. I'd go to India even if only for the camel festival, and that'd probably be all I could afford to do. As things go, however, my India visa will not be approved for another week, and even if I get lucky with the train connections and push straight through to Rajasthan, I'd only catch the final day. And that's assuming all went smoothly, and nothing is smooth about Indian travel. I think it's best that I make this difficult decision now rather than fuel my hopes and end up brokenhearted later. I hope you can understand. So the camels must go on without me. I wish you the best of success and hope your beasts fetch fair prices and your acquisitions have humps of the highest grade. Sincerely, 
J. No Camel, No Cry, Schneider. November 1st, 2000. 2. The Indian Embassy, Kathmandu, Nepal. Hello again! Remember me? I was the one applying for a tourist visa to your country. Yeah, that's right. There were about 80 of us there this morning. Anyhow, I wanted to thank you for your hospitality and kindness during my three-hour stay with you this morning and the one hour sitting outside. I must say your curbs rank right up there with the best of them. I appreciate how each of the lines moved progressively slower as I moved from the unmarked line, then to line B, and finally, my favorite, line 3. The fact that for a 45-minute stretch there was absolutely no movement gave me the time to catch up on some reading and redo that form because, silly me, I used blue ink, not black. I know you said I only have to repeat this once more in seven days before returning for a third time to get the actual visa, but I was encouraged by the many returnees who found they still had not been approved after seven days and would get to try again the next day. I'm sure we're going to be seeing a lot more of each other. Since we're becoming so close, why not call me Jack, as the many Nepali do, despite my repeated corrections and explaining that J is my real name? Or Jake, if you prefer, as the German girl in my volunteer program did for two weeks, without my being aware of it. Perhaps I thought it was her accent, or the coincidence that when she said my name, the next word began with a k sound. J could you and Jake could you sound very similar. When saying our goodbye, she apologized for her mistake. We had exchanged emails so she'd seen my name in writing. And I, this being the first I'd known of it, apologized for not noticing her mistake. Call me what you want, call me what you will, just call me as soon as my visa's ready. See you soon. J, if I were from Uruguay, I wouldn't need a visa, Schneider. P.S. Would it speed things along if I told you I have a camel fare to get to? November 1st, 2000. To mom. Hi, mom. Sorry I haven't written in a while, but you know. And I promise to clean my room as soon as I get back. Can I ask you a favor? See, I'm applying for a visa to India, and in the first stage, a form is faxed to the states to make sure I'm not a criminal or other unruly character. For some reason, this process takes about a week. I was thinking maybe a note from you telling them I'm a good boy and a nice guy would speed things up a bit. I mean, why bother to contact the authorities and officials back home where they can just get the goods direct from a boy's mother? So just drop a line or give a call. Tell them good things and don't mention my bedwetting phase or that time I broke your favorite vase because I was playing ball in the house, but I glued it back together before you ever knew about it. Oh, wait, forget that part. Thanks, J. Not a hooligan, Schneider. P.S. I shaved my head and became a monk. Ha ha ha. Just kidding, I didn't really become a monk. November 1st, 2002. Drift Nepal River Rafting Expeditions. Hey guys, I really enjoyed my last trip with you down the Kali Gandaki River. The rapids were exciting, the scenery was beautiful, and the people were great. You run a safe and professional operation, and I had total confidence in our guide. I'm sure that time he fell out with over half our members was just a test to see if we remembered how to pull people back into the raft. Anyway, as it turns out, I've got some time left in Nepal while I await my Indian visa, and I was thinking about doing another trip. But I have some doubts as to whether it's the best thing for me. With one rafting trip under my belt, do I really need to be spending more time? 
and money. On a second one, after three weeks of walking over 350 kilometers followed by three days of physically demanding rapids, do I have the strength or money and endurance or money to raft again so soon? Even though I've been on one trip, do I really have the skills and money and experience money required for your more advanced, expensive trips? It's not about the money. It's about the money. I'll do some thinking, but maybe I'll sign up for your two-day Bote Kosi trip, though a shorter, cheaper trip. It's a technically difficult run with near-continuous rapids from put-in to take-out. Of course, two days is a short period of time, but I'm sure the team will be able to rapidly, <laughs> rapidly, <laughs> rapid, rapidly, get it, develop deep and close bonds that will last a lifetime. Screw the people. Just give me the action. We'll be in touch. Jay, second-timers discount? Schneider. Did you catch that? After three Jack title emails, I finally explained the whole Jack thing. Well, maybe I didn't fully explain it. So for some reason, when I was in Nepal, a lot of the locals were calling me Jack instead of Jay. And so this was on my mind as I was writing the emails. I thought, oh, that's funny. And of course, I inserted it in the subject line, but never explained it. And then I thought that was kind of funny. So the next email, I said, well, now I'm going to explain it. But of course, I never did. And then the third time I said, well, wow, you don't know Jack, which I thought was funny. And really, you don't even know the whole story. And I, again, failed to explain it. So it was a great inside joke. Um, but what's funny is all these years later, as I was preparing for this, I actually, in my head, forgot that the locals were calling me Jack, but remembered that Barbara had mistaken my name for being Jake. And when, she, when we were exchanging emails before we were leaving, writing each other's contact information and writing it down, she saw my name was Jay, not Jake. She came up to me and apologized for calling me Jake for the past two weeks, whereas I didn't notice, so I felt guilty and bad that I didn't notice she was mispronouncing my name, calling me Jake instead of Jay. Well, anyways, so somehow in my mind all these years, I thought I was referring to that, but I had made a typo in typing it, and though Jake was in my mind, I had typed Jack, and well, anyways, that's the whole Jack thing. I'm just going to consider this matter closed. Unlike Susan, I'm just going to let it go. I think that's going to be a new thing. So I spent three weeks trekking around the Annapurna mountain range, and it was awesome on so many levels. I may say more about this trek in a future episode, but given my history of raising topics and the never following up, uh, I'd better at least give you this nugget. I'll say it was a mind-blowing three weeks in the Annapurna mountain range. I got to an elevation of 17,769 feet, or 5,416 meters, and it was an incredible experience from the nature, the, the physical exertion, the beauty, and the people around us. I also went on an awesome river rafting trip. And as you can imagine, in a mountainous country like Nepal, there are some great rivers with powerful rapids. Total adrenaline junkie fun in a gorgeous surrounding. And then camping by the side of the river each night, meeting awesome fellow adventurers from around the world. I met a couple of American dudes on that trip, but I'll talk about them later. So at this point in my trip, I was at another decision point, and it was a bit of a struggle, and at least as I read back my words from 20 years ago, I can sense a bit of a frustrated tone. Of course, as I've said before in earlier episodes, having choices is good. When you have such freedom that you have the luxury to make choices without sacrifice, then yeah, you're doing okay. So how is it that this free-spirited, unchained, easygoing world wanderer with all the time in the world was suddenly stressing and frustrated over his next move? Well, let me tell you. 
Though in theory I had no time constraints, there were some time-related influences. Number one, the yearly Pushkar Camel Festival. It had been on my list of things I'd wanted to see, and I was quite excited when I learned that I'd be in the region around the time that event was happening. But when I set off for South Asia, I envisioned a couple weeks in Nepal and then heading down to India for two or three months. Well, two weeks in Nepal turned into two months, which is a very good sign of that country, but it meant making it to the Camel Festival was becoming tight. However, I still had just enough time to get from Kathmandu to Pushkar. Well, except... Number two. So getting the visa for India was a bit more time-consuming than anyone would like. Though visa agreements between countries can vary, for a U.S. citizen applying for a visa outside the United States, or at least applying for a visa at the embassy in Kathmandu, it takes seven days. In exchange, you get a six-month visa. Fun fact, had I gotten a visa in the United States, it could have been a 10-year visa. Hmm, who knew? So I knew of this wait time, but it still looked like I could make some magic happen. But, well, my bus from Pokhara to Kathmandu got a bit delayed, so that by the time I arrived in Kathmandu, it was too late on a Friday to apply, which meant having to wait until the Monday, which meant my seven days wouldn't start till then, so, well, I quickly started running out of days. Anyway, my first letter, note, I really didn't send these letters, these were all in an email. So my first letter was really about letting go of my dreams of seeing the Pushkar Camel Festival and a bit of my mourning and grief process. It may have been possible for me to hightail it to Pushkar and catch the last day, but odds were slim, so I just had to let go of an idea that I'd been so attached to. Number three. Once I let go of that time-based event, you may think that I could just return to my carefree, no-clock-needing days, but I'd also met up with a couple of guys, Justin and Dan, more on them later, and we'd been hanging out and having a grand old time. I'd met them in Pokhara, and they were also heading on to India. However, they left Pokhara a day or two ahead of me, but that one or two days made all the difference. Since I missed the cutoff to get my application in on the Friday, well, basically I'd end up being four to five days behind them, and I was having a blast hanging out with them. So this was further coloring my view of how this waiting around time was sort of an obstacle to what I wanted to do. So my letters were written in that moment with a bit of a tone expressing my suffering at the attachment to these ideas and visions of how I thought things could or should go. Hmm, suffering and attachment. Maybe it is good I ended up visiting Buddha's birthplace a week later. Hmm. Number four. There's another constraint which was limiting my time. My money. So I told you about my budget strategy, and I don't just mean the travel till the money runs out vision. I mean the more tactical method of dumping my money in a secure safe deposit box in Bangkok and then only traveling with an amount I figured I would need to get me through my next leg. For better or worse, this meant I had zero flexibility in going over budget. I had all the money I had until I next made it to Bangkok to fill up the money belt. As a life rule, constraints are not always a bad thing. Apart from offering protections and guardrails, they also force creativity and problem solving. Stay tuned for a future episode in India, where I get an entry-level job in lead gen marketing and outside sales. But of course, limitations can also be a source of frustration and disappointment. It also meant that I was anchored to Bangkok. I mean, there are worse things in life, but it did mean no matter how far I traveled, I knew I needed to be able to get back to Bangkok. Often when traveling, you start expanding your boundaries and pushing your limits. Okay, I mean this in all ways, but specifically geographically. 
meaning that you may start with one area or region being the center of your universe and world, but as you travel to the edges, that becomes your center and new edges and boundaries emerge. You're in Bangkok and decide to head to Cambodia, and then you see Vietnam is right there. You travel north and you overland it into China, and next thing you know, you're on the Trans-Siberian Railroad and you're sitting in St. Petersburg. And maybe you'd never considered it, but as you wander, it's not just that you see the possibility and the opportunity, but it just becomes normal and almost obvious. Once I was on a train to Amritsar in northeastern India, stay tuned for a future episode, is near the border with Pakistan, and I met travelers on the train who were continuing on to Pakistan. Sitting in Japan or even in Bangkok, heading to Pakistan may not have been on my radar at all, but when you're close enough to see the border, it becomes the most natural and normal thing in the world to just keep on going. I didn't cross over to Pakistan because I was still anchored to Southeast Asia. Well, at least if I wanted to get my money, I had to go back. So budget-wise, I figured the bulk of my money would go towards two to three months in India. But that extra six weeks in Nepal didn't come for free. Also, the three-week trek and the three-day whitewater rafting trip are relatively expensive compared to just chilling out in a beach for a few weeks, so my remaining funds were dwindling quickly. The catch-22 of the visa situation is, I could have gone to India immediately if I'd only wanted a 15-day transit visa. But I didn't want to do just two weeks in a country when I knew I could spend two years, or at least two months, exploring. So I would have to wait the seven days for a six-month visa, or more like nine days with the weekend. That's a chunk of time that I could have gone on another rafting trip, headed towards Everest, down the national parks in the south, many things in Nepal. But those kinds of activities would have then drained my budget so that by the time I collected my six-month visa, I'd only have enough money to last for 15 days anyways. Putting this all in perspective, I was not a rupeeless pauper having to beg for rice on the streets. India is a country where I could have taken my limited funds and camped out on a beautiful beach in Goa or gone into the mountains and meditated and stayed happily for six months on the cheap. But there were places I wanted to see, things I wanted to do. So I had to think about how I wanted to spend my time and money, given spending one would impact the other. Spending more money, moving from place to place, seeing sights and doing more activities would shorten my time. Spending more time at one place would give my rupee some relief, but also maybe not be what I wanted to do. So I just had to think about how I wanted to spend my time and money, or more accurately, wait for it people, here comes the purpose, intention, conscious, living, truth bomb. Or more accurately, it wasn't about how to spend my time and money, it was about how did I want to spend my life. So I definitely considered scrapping India altogether. If I didn't have enough time to do it right, just save it for the future when I can do it properly. One night in Kathmandu, I talked with a local and, and we discussed a plan of how he could take me by jeep through the mountains into Tibet. For a few hours, that was my plan. I was all in. I'd trade India for Tibet, have an amazing couple of weeks, then head back to Thailand to continue my adventure. At the end of that night, however, the guy warned me it would have been better to do this plan a month earlier because around this time, we risked impassable roads due to snow and we may not actually ever make it. I also considered just heading back to Southeast Asia and continuing my adventures. But I was so, so close, and well, I just couldn't let go of India altogether. So in the end, I did commit to India. Spoiler alert, I spent six amazing weeks there. And surprisingly enough, I found myself spending the entire week in the Kathmandu Valley, every day filled with enriching and amazing experiences. This was in part due to the fact that the Kathmandu Valley has a lot to offer, and also because I was hanging out with two fellow travelers, Dan and Justin, and we had a lot of fun together. 
There were two Americans who were also on an adventure of their own, and we met. Um, I'm, I'm, I think we met in Pokhara. If, if I'm remembering this correctly, I don't have my notes with me, but I think my journal support uh, it might have been on the was a rafting trip, and I really don't want to mislead you. Um, uh, okay, you know what? Best, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna check with them so I can verify this. I have. I have a recollection. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna swear that it's true. Ground rules for this is absolutely. It's all on based on my recollection. Completely okay. agree. We all have a faulty memories. What do you remember, Dan? Well, based on what I recall, or at least the way it was in my mind, and has been for the last twenty years. Um, and I haven't talked to Justin about this. Uh, we met you on the rafting trip that we took down the Kali Gandaki, where we were camping on the banks of it. At night. Well, I remember we met on that trip on the bus ride there. You you two were behind um, me, and I don't know if we'd met at the pre meeting or you know whatever. But you guys were chatting with each other. I was sitting next to Bertrand, and I kind of you know said to him, kind of in a low voice, said, "Oh boy, those two guys back there, those those two Americans, they lived in Japan. I totally know the type." And then he goes, "Wait, weren't you an American who taught English in Japan?" I go, "Yep." <laughs> I actually found in my journal. I'm going to read this real quick because I found this thing. Uh, hitting the first rapid uh, was a blast, though I got a blast a lot more than the others. Being at the boat's front, uh, the raft tilted. I was halfway in the water, and I'm sure it was it was because my properly wedged foot, which kept me in. Now, this is the reason I'm reading it. Though Justin falling down across the boat on top of me probably helped. <laughs> so apparently, Justin, you probably fell on top of me and kept me in that boat. But I didn't remember that until I read that. Oh, wow. I'd forgotten that. Interesting. <laughs> Nice. Glad to be of service. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you. But I think uh, the second or third day, we finally hit something where we a bunch of us fell out. But I remember there was four and four on each side, and then our guide in the back, and the raft flipped on its side. The four, I was on the high side, and the raft flipped up. I saw the four on the back fall backwards in. The person next to me falls straight down into the water. Oh, no. But I didn't care about that. All I saw was the guide falling out going like, you're not supposed to fall out. (laughs) (laughs) Also, another thing about that trip, and I don't know if I told you guys that because I was trying to be super discreet and cool about it, but the night before I was feeling really sick and then I woke up that morning and on that whole bus ride, I felt I was just going to vomit. I was just like going to puke. And when we got to... The, whatever the put-in site where you have the boats out and the and and the you know the buses were there and everybody's I think getting to know each other chatting maybe making food getting all excited and I was just feeling like I was going to puke because I was I don't know what was going on with me but I'm like trying to act cool like kind of walking around and I kind of walk behind one of the buses and I just sort of step behind the bus out of sight completely just puke my guts out and then then just sort of like keep on walking and just like so if you just saw me you just said oh jay just walked around the bus but i was just super smooth that i was totally sick but i remember as soon as we hit that first rapid and got that adrenaline i was like oh this is awesome and also i was reading in my journal apparently you guys i went to Kathmandu like a day or two before bert and i did uh and i was reading my journal i mean i'm sure we exchanged emails and we were gonna connect but it was by chance that i think we ended up at the same guest house or hotel wherever we were staying because in my notes I talk about how Bert and I we went to a some place and it was full so we went to Hotel Miyako or something like if, if my notes are right I can picture the place it's a nice little 
Yeah, I can picture it too. And it says, where as chance would have it, Justin and Dan are staying. So it was kind of by chance that you guys were Yeah, there. and it was also by chance, if memory serves, that we had to wait like a week to get the Indian visa. That's why we stayed in Kathmandu for so long. Oh, yeah. That was also a point of frustration. Well, it's probably frustration for everyone. But also, I remember for me, because it was a week to get the visa, um, you had to go submit the forms and then it's like, a week later, you go pick it up again. But you guys were a, a day or two ahead and you'd gone to the visa, dropped your thing off. Mm. The bus ride that I took, we got delayed and I got there like on Friday evening. So I couldn't even put in my visa till that Monday. And uh, you guys already had it in that Thursday or Friday. So so by the time, you know, when we were hanging out on the weekend and you're like, oh, well, a few more days ago to India. And I'm like, I got a whole other week. I haven't even put my thing in yet. So I remember thinking I was kind of bummed because I was excited to go to India at this point. But in the end, you know, hey, ended up enjoying all that, those days in Kathmandu. Yeah, I enjoyed Kathmandu a lot more than I expected to. Yeah, same here. Because that was our second trip through, but we really stayed for for a bit. Yeah, we really did. We, our first trip, our, our first trip through didn't didn't start that well. <laughs> and I also remember that Indian visa line was crazy. It was like five hours in the rain, and we met this pastry chef from Bombay. We met that guy. Yeah. Remember Dan's guy Mario? Yeah, he was, he was a really cool dude, Mario. Yeah, he really was. We ended up <laughs> we ended up meeting him and having. I think that was uh, a catalyst for our probably one of the craziest nights of the trip. I don't know, maybe that wasn't, no, it wasn't Bombay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, but. Um, well, t tell me about that. Tell me about that. So waiting in the Indian visa line, five hours in the rain, very, very slow moving uh, line. It just seemed gratuitously long. It seemed like they were taking extra amounts of time and taking great pleasure in that, you know, the sort of famous Indian bureaucracy. <laughs> yes. And yeah, we uh, befriended this Indian pastry chef who was going back to Bombay. It's an American guy from Chicago. And he ended up really uh, hooking us up in, in Bombay where he worked. We got there a few weeks later uh, and we ended up having just a, a crazy, crazy night, um, which ended up with us skinny dipping in the, uh, was it the Oberoi or the no, Taj Mahal? The Taj. Yeah, it was the Taj Mahal uh, Hotel, not the Taj Mahal, <laughs> yes. the Taj Mahal Hotel. No. Not the actual Taj Mahal. Okay. <laughs> cool. Skinny dipping at like, at like, 3 a.m. and doing push-ups in the corridor and um, we stole a bottle of whiskey from the stole hotel. a bottle of whiskey from behind the bar. We had like an elaborate um, sort of incriminating ourselves here, um, but <laughs> we had like a, I think the statute of limitations run. Well, we didn't steal it, Justin. We convinced that Texas guy to steal it. Uh, we had an elaborate scheme. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I created we the version, <laughs> and then you came over. And we're like, oh, Dan, are you okay? Oh, gosh. Yeah, yeah. We had we had this like uh, scheme to distract the staff. And uh, this guy stole his bottle of whiskey, and we so we went to the pool. And a great example of white privilege, you know. Um, Non-white guys <laughs> probably going to be a problem, but three guys uh, literally skinny dipping at like 2 a.m., raising a ruckus and diving into the pool, um, drunk as hell, um, and uh, just an amazing time. You know, <laughs> it was really one of the most memorable <laughs> nights of the of the whole trip. Bigger things, what were the biggest things that you got out of the trip that you feel? Or what are some of the biggest takeaways, I mean, apart from wild and crazy experiences, but what were some of the, the biggest things that you got out of, the, out of your big trip or trips? I, I really enjoyed talking to and meeting other travelers and having in-depth conversations and experiences. Um, and to, to me, that was the number one, my favorite thing. Justin and I used to have a running dialogue while we were on the big trip. He always preferred to 
sort of go local and spend more time with the local people than with the travelers. Although obviously both of us did a mix of both, but yeah, I think the travelers were my favorite part of the trip. Sure. Uh, I'd say and the experiences one, that we shared together. I'd say one broad lesson. That's when I first learned that, and I've since modified this, but I, I really kind of came away with the idea that the, the world is, is not a scary and dangerous place. And it's generally uh, a place filled with good people that are willing to help you out and um, just want you to enjoy yourself and don't mean you any harm. I think I have to modify that sort of looking back that all three of us just being white guys. And I, I definitely think it's a, mm -hmm. you know, it, it would have been a very different experience for, let's say, a, you know, a woman of color or, or really mm -hmm. anyone but a white guy, you know? Yes, we were adventurous, independent solo travels, had great experiences, but being a white male is, you know, that can't be overlooked. Yeah, yeah. especially <laughs> in Asia, you know, it was, it had to have been different. Yeah, I would say that based on other travel, that Asia was not an outlier and that I've really been treated even maybe with even more hospitality in the Middle East and Africa. I'd say definitely with more hospitality. Asia, I think, was was very friendly and very safe, but more transactional than than either Africa than, or Middle East. My, my experience is... Yeah, I feel I, the same way. And for me, it's um, Muslim countries versus non-Muslim yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, compare yeah, Malaysia countries. to Thailand, you know, and I was yeah. in Malaysia more recently than Thailand, but both a few years ago. Um, and, you know, in Thailand, everybody's trying to sell you something. You don't know whether to take somebody at their word. Or Vietnam. In, in Malaysia, it was totally different. Yeah. Um, people were, every, you know, nobody was trying to cheat me. Agreed. This is more uh, Borneo, Malaysian Borneo, at least. I also really enjoyed... Um, learning some some language i guess that started with japan um learning some japanese i know both of you guys speak varying levels of japanese um and then also a bit with thai definitely with indonesian probably the easiest language in the world i kind of decided that i'm i'm often very happy um and much to dan's annoyance i remember um when i and learning a language and really progressing in it. And when I feel like I can have that level of communication, even if it's superficial and stupid as some of the communications might've been, um, you know, that it really made me happy, you know? And uh, so that, that was another takeaway from the trip. Well, it was less, I, I, was, I was less annoyed with your trying to learn local languages than I was by your sort of lording it over me and continuously proselytizing that I need to be able to have a conversation about the color of an apple with a local to really understand the people. <laughs> you know, rather than discussing Nietzsche or Proust with some international traveler who gets it. No, nah, fair enough. And as you say, it's a, it's a balance of, of both. And certainly you, you want to have those, you know, sort of uh, more intellectually in-depth conversations with travelers. And I, I really, really enjoyed those as well. Um, yeah, and as it turns out, everyone is an individual, and everybody has different experiences and different ways of experiencing them and internalizing them and and benefiting from them. I mean that that is such a simple, dumb lesson, but it was made perilously obvious by spending so much time around uh, a good friend uh, for a period of months. Yeah, people have different approaches. You got to figure out what works. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. I apologize. Members of the J-Luck Club, 
I forgot you guys were there. Um, how rude of me. I didn't properly introduce you. Uh, that was Dan and Justin, uh, the, the guys I met in, in Nepal and would, would later uh, spend some time with in, in Thailand. Just got lost catching up with them after 20 years of not being in touch. Don't worry, dear listeners. I'll be sharing more of my conversation with Justin and Dan in the next episode. But I just want to say, hang on. I don't have a song for you this time, but still I feel I need a little, some of that Bobby Hennebury chord-savvy magic. Chordsavvy.com. Rock on. I told you that I met some really amazing people in my travels. Some were local to the country in which I was visiting, and others fellow adventurers from around the world. Though Dan and Justin had different perspectives on which types of connections were more significant, for all of us, it is the people we met which enriched our experiences, the trip, and our lives. Unfortunately for me, most of these amazing people I've met through travels, world wanderings, and everyday life, well, I've lost touch with over the years. While true, my infamous Excite.com address book got wiped out years ago, so I lost that channel of connection. And I also chose to sit out on the first decade plus of the social media revolution. I also just didn't do a great job of actively maintaining those connections. Sure, life gets in the way, and yes, as I mentioned in episode 7, chance encounters of running into friends and acquaintances does have a magical quality, but now more than ever, I'm realizing the importance of consciously and actively keeping those relationships alive. As a result of this podcast, I've, I've reconnected with Dan and Justin. It was so much fun to catch up with them, the three of us together after almost 20 years, and I look forward to keeping in contact with them as our lives move forward. I may talk about the mind-blowing temples in Cambodia or the incredible beauty of Nepal's mountains or even some food so inspiring it moved me to song. Check out Dalbot Diddy, Episode 8. But in the end, it's really all about human connections. It's about the relationships. It's about people. You know what? I think I'm just going to end it there. It's all about people. You'll hear more of my conversation with Justin and Dan in the next episode as we talk about how we spent our days in Kathmandu, awaiting the approval of our Indian visas. Though the wisdom in our choices may have been lacking, and I can't speak for Justin and Dan, I, for one, have absolutely no regrets. Thank you, as always, for listening and spending your time with me on this memory journey. The JLUC Club podcast is presented by Honey Roasted T-Shirts, which makes all of this possible. For pictures, show notes, and extras, visit honeyroastedt-shirts.com. You can also drop me a line at thejlutclub at honeyroastedt-shirts.com. If all that's too much for you, visit thejlutclubpodcast.com or just subscribe. Subscribe to iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play. If you enjoy this podcast and or you think you know someone else who may enjoy it, please share and spread the word. As a gesture to Jake, remember I mentioned in episode 7 when I insulted his tea selling career 20 years ago? Check out his awesome podcast, Tales from the Sass Graveyard, a revealing and entertaining look into the world of Silicon Valley tech companies in the middle of the bell curve. They're not going out of business, but definitely not hitting the big time. Check it out at sassgraveyard.com, that's S-A-A-S graveyard.com, or iTunes and podcast outlets everywhere. Thank you for listening to the JLUT Club podcast. If you listen to this podcast, or if you have read the emails and visited the blog, 
Or maybe you have a bunch of printouts of old emails I sent you years ago, which I don't have anymore. Thanks, Dan. Well, you just might be a member of the J Luck Club. Thank you for staying tuned to Journal Extras. Just going to read a few entries from my journal. No pressure. None of this will be on the exam. Ran into the Swiss couple. You don't know them yet. I'll explain them later. Swiss couple recommends the Kaligandaki rafting trip. Gopal takes us to Drift Nepal Outfitter. We sign up for a three-day Kaligandaki trip, but I'm glad the matter's settled. Interesting to be wandering around civilization again. Amsterdam bar. Run into the Dutch girls that Bertrand was into. Fun conversation. Wow, it's been a while since I've been to a, in a bar setting. See the Swiss couple and Gopal. We head out to eat. Good fun, good company. We part for real this time. October 24th. Uncomfortable sleep. Small tent sharing with tall Bertrand, so no room to move about as I am wont to do. Breakfast, pack up gear. I am impatient. I want the rapids. Fun times, beautiful gorges, spectacular waterfalls, and some cool rapids. End of day two, we set up camp along the side of the river while a whole village comes out to watch. Rain, we huddle under the, sh- under the shelter. The rain stops. Good night. Oh, here we go. October 27th, back to Kathmandu. Bertrand is taking the luxury liner, so I head out before him. The bus ride's okay. Midway, we are stopped. There was some dispute, so a grieved party decided to block the road to prohibit anyone from crossing. Buses and trucks backed up forever in both directions. Lots of yelling. I realize how easy it would be to be frustrated by this delay. But I'm not. I have nowhere to be. I have a book to read. And if I get to Kathmandu today or tomorrow, no matter. It's liberating, this feeling. (laughs) Fun fact, that's how I felt in the moment. Then later, after the whole visa thing, I was all upset about time. was a crazy night and still to this day the only morning after where i've woken up with vomit in my bed <laughs> yeah so i we must were... have at some point had the good sense to wake up before i throw up and, you know just leave it there <laughs> uh... Um, is there anything else you guys want to say, share, mention anything? Uh, 
um, nothing specifically about traveling or the trip, but I would like to catch up with you, I guess, offline and find out what you've been doing the last <laughs> 15 to 20 years. You'll have to wait for episode 13, where I tell you right. what I've been doing. <laughs> That'll be episode 86, I think. <laughs> Where's Jay now? <laughs> uh, um, no, let, let's let's definitely uh, catch up. I, 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 we should, because uh, um, um, I'm going to go ahead and stop the recording now. Dun, dun, dun.